Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, December 15th, 2011. All right, we're, we're a little frustrated at the moment regarding my brother's brain surgery. I'll have an update about that shortly. And I definitely have enough stories for two programs. <laughs> Maybe I should just record them both right now and just split it up and call it two days worth and take a three-day weekend. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Listen, the Apostle Paul doesn't get off the hook regarding having his gospel compared to the Word of God, then I don't get off the hook. Uh, Rick Warren doesn't get off the hook. Tim Tebow doesn't get off the hook. None of us gets off the hook. Why? Because we're all kind of in the same boat. It's not even kind of. We all really be in the same boat. And that boat is, is that, well, by nature, we have inherited from Adam a corrupt, sinful nature. And by nature, we are objects of God's wrath. And uh, the only hope that any of us has is that God has sought us out. God has washed us. God has forgiven us. God has brought us to repentance and the forgiveness of sins and faith and trust in Christ for our eternal salvation, not because of any work that we've done, but because of everything that he's done. And so, you know, that's the, if we, we're constantly listening to see if that's the message that's being preached. And over and again, um, the message that is being preached by many in the church today, invisible Christianity, is more along the lines of self-actualization, something to do with, uh, you know, God has some big, hairy, audacious plan for your life. You know, in fact, uh, you need to pray big, bold prayers and have big, bold dreams. And well, if you don't have a big, bold dream, you're probably going to be insulting God. And so, um, and who are those who are held up as examples, as proof that God has a big, bold dream for you? Well, the, the latest, greatest successes and flashes in the pan of uh, people who've experienced some kind of success. Yeah, the thing is, is that the way the world judges success and the way God just judges success are two completely different things. Um, Jesus's way of thinking and the world's way of thinking are at odds. They are in collision. And, uh, and as a result of this, when we start bringing in the world's way of defining success 
and somehow turning the gospel into temporary here and now success, that's not the gospel. It's something completely different. And so uh, we, you know, this is a program that does the politically incorrect thing. Uh, it gets me in trouble from time to time. From time to time, I uh, I, I upset folks. And it, <laughs> not hard to do, by the way. You don't even have to try. You, all you got to do is hang something out there and you, you, people will respond. And, uh, and some of them will say yay. Some of them will say nay. And some of them will say on guard. <laughs> and then you, you get out your sword and you go ching, 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 ching. But because, you know, I'm a pirate, you know, I never mind. Okay, so I said that I had some news regarding uh, my brother. Now, on yesterday's edition of Fighting for the Faith, the news that I had prior to going on the air was that he was going to be having a surgery on Monday. That's been pushed back. It is now Thursday. So it's a week from today. And uh, this morning, um, my brother um, sent me uh, his MRI, photographs of his brain. Now, um first reaction to seeing my brother's brain was ew um it's it's disconcerting um i mean there's my kid brother and there's his brain you know and uh and lo and behold right there in the photograph of his brain which is again i it's weird that you can do this um was a, a black mass in his left frontal lobe and you can see in the MRI that he there's swelling around um you know the the tumor and um and the latest the news is that uh, you know his eye is bulging out as a result of the pressure in his brain and and I'm thinking and they're going to wait a week to get in there and take this thing out so um you know let's just say that uh, I've once again had the opportunity for my emotions to run through what seems to be a full spectrum and um as a result of that i'm <clears throat> yeah well you get what i'm saying so anyway keep him in your prayers i know that many of you are praying and uh, i just wanted to give you all an update and let you know what's going on we just a week is kind of a, you know an, an additional week on top of what we've already been through is a long seems like an eternity to go through to get some answers as to what it is that we're facing, but that's just the way it is right now. And part of it has to do with just the fact that it's that time of the year. It's the most wonderful time of the year. So, you know, my, my brother has, he's got a great attitude and, uh, you know, in the text message exchange that we had today, um, my brother is, um, well, he has a similar sense of humor, uh, to me that, well, he, we have the same sense of humor. It's probably the best way to put it. And, uh, and so he was rattling off, brain tumor jokes <laughs> it's, it's kind of caught me off guard he said you know chris i have a lot on my mind and i went oh serious Ser really you're, you're gonna do this now and he said sure why not <laughs> and it's like okay so you know there we go so um i just wanted to give you that update but Anyway, we got a normal edition, a normal uh, episode of Fighting for the Faith on deck. And uh, so he, he, well, let's take a look at what, what stories I want to get to today. Okay, so um, I've got a um, an XPmedia.com uh, update. The uh, Patricia King gang, it, it seems that they've got a new strategy. And uh, it, it, what I, this is an interesting new strategy that they've begun employing with the videos that they're publishing at the Extreme Prophetic website. 
and that is is that they have regular people that are putting videos out and each and every one of them is talking pretty much about the same topic and so it's like it's like uh, um the, the, here's bullet point for this week go and record a 5 minute video and everybody goes and records and so you got you know 7 8 videos all on the same topic and so um, which I think is kind of an interesting way of doing things, but what I'm going to do here is uh, we'll go ahead and take a look at one of these uh, from Julie Meyer because I can't make heads or tails of it. And uh, and then I got another video of a gentleman by the name of Rev Richard. Rev Richard. You can find him at RevRichard.com. And uh, he's got a video out there entitled, What's Your Purpose? So we're going to take a look at that um, I might have some Tim Tebow news in in the fact that uh, it's really ridiculous looking at some of the crazy anti-Tebow stories out there. And if you follow me on Facebook or Twitter, then you know about the story already. But uh, the headline from Business Insider um, yesterday read, If uh, Rabbi claims if Tim Tebow wins the Super Bowl, Christians will start burning mosques and bashing gays. Yeah, um, right. So we'll take a look at that story today. I've got an Albert Muller piece I want to get to entitled, Must We Believe in the Virgin Birth? Fantastic question to be asking this time of year. Um, I don't know if I'm going to get to uh, this, this other one or not, but I've got a, a, a YouTube video from Leadership Network entitled, Fast Forwarding Your Church's Community Engagement. And uh, in case you you um, you haven't noticed, there's a particular type of segment that I've been doing now for a little while. And if you go back into October and you find the Will Mancini Church Unique update that we did, um, you'll and you kind of about once a week, once every couple of weeks, there's these episodes that I do or these segments that I do, basically trying to figure out what on earth people are saying. I don't get it. I, you know, there's there's Christian book publishers and and uh, conference things and and um, leadership networks, <clears throat> literally leadership network, that are putting stuff out on the market that when they open their mouths and start speaking, I don't understand a word they're saying. I just don't get it. The it there's this language barrier and i'm and and so this uh, i want to play this and see if you can make heads or tails of it i mean it's not completely incoherent but i mean there's some stuff in there that just makes me go huh and uh, and then i by the way there there's a phenomenon happening in my inbox on in my email at uh, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com and the phenomenon kind of goes something like this oh chris that sermon that you just played from Troy Gramling, claiming it was the worst Christmas sermon of all time. I beg to differ with you. I found one that you might find to be worse. Just by just want to let every one of you know that um, this is a form of torture. Um, that uh, at this point, uh, <laughs> the overwhelming number of bad Christmas sermons that are uh, that are being sent to me to be requested to be reviewed. Um, after sampling some of these, I'm accusing some of my listeners in, are engaging in some type of sermonizing waterboarding. And um, and so what I thought I would do is just pass along the, the misery and pain today, and uh, we will be listening 
to a sermon entitled Believe, uh, Finding Faith at Christmas Time from Milestone Church in hour number two. And it's not, I, trust me when I tell you, it's not as bad as the Troy Grambling sermon. And in some senses, actually, this is a, this is a little bit more fun of a sermon to review. And the reason why is this is because, um, this pastor does a really good job of trying to create. His name is Jeff Little. He does a very good job of making it appear as if he's engaging in true exegetical biblical teaching. And uh, the thing is, is that the um, the eisegesis and the exegesis happen so quickly that there's things that he says that can't be supported in the text. And so it's like he reads the text and then comes to the wrong conclusion, but he says it with such conviction that, that, that the thing that he's saying is in the text, even though it's not in the text, that you find yourself wanting to believe that it's in the text, but it's not really in there. Does that make any sense? I just wonder. Anyway, so that's what we're going to be doing in hour number two today. So make yourself comfortable. Um, just so you, if, you, if you're a new listener to Fighting for the Faith, from time to time I, I let people know that this is the kind of program that's rough and tumble. You may not be used to this format of putting somebody's teaching under scrutiny. And as a result of it, it's politically incorrect. It takes a little bit of getting used to fighting for the faith has been known to be like a theological, really large, cold bucket of water that gets thrown on your face. And uh, it can be shocking and jarring and jolting. Get past that and keep listening and you'll understand what's going on here because really what this is all about is learning how to carefully listen and to biblically listen to what people are claiming to see if what they're teaching is truly what God's word says. So that's what we're really all about. Okay, so with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. And since we're doing a Patricia King update, uh, that requires us to play this. All right. Okay. So the name of the video we're going to be looking at uh, from Julie Meyer from IHOP, the International House of Prayer in Kansas City, uh, who is a regular contributor to XPmedia.com, is entitled I See America. I See America. Now, as you listen to Julie Meyer, um, pay close attention to the source for the information that she's sharing in this particular video. Is it God's Word? Um, is it a clear biblical text, or is it something completely different, something that you should have a lot of skepticism toward? Well, um, here's Julie Meyer. Listen in. Hi, my name is Julie Meyer, and I'm from the International House of Prayer in Kansas City, Missouri. And you hear the question over and over, what is God saying for the 2012 elections? And I want to... You know, um, really, you get that question a lot. I mean... How is it that these folks are getting all these questions like I never get? You know, uh, what are we supposed to do about the upcoming food shortage? What is God saying about the upcoming 2012 election? I mean, ser I mean, serious. Um, by the way, uh, <clears throat> kind of off topic, but on topic. Um, you know, I reached out today and uh, and uh, sent uh, an official press communique uh, interview request to uh, Tim Tebow's publicist. And, uh, and, you know, there's a process you have to go through. And, you know, 
Um, and luckily, it didn't require me to do any Hail Mary things. But here's the deal is, you know, uh, you're talking about God as if he's some kind of, you know, guru or celebrity that, you know, maybe E.F. Hutton or something like that, that we can, you know, what's God saying about such and such? You know, what does God have to say about uh, the fact that the Indianapolis Colts haven't won a single game this season except for the bye week? Um, <clears throat> sorry. Did I sound bitter? Um, anyway. <laughs> So, I mean, really, I mean, so people are walking around somewhere and going, you know, what do you think God's saying about the upcoming 2012 elections? What do you think God's saying? I don't know. What do you think God's saying? I think he's – are there people really asking this question? And how is it that she thinks she's got some kind of an answer? I share a dream with you uh, because, number one, you know – You're going to share a dream with us. Oh, yeah. I'm sure this is all truth. Uh, number one, we simply ask God, what is on your heart? And we get to know that. We get to know that answer. But So I sit down with God, you know, maybe having um, a you know, nice big mug of chai tea or something. And, you know, and, you know, kind of put my one leg over the other and casually lean back. So, God, what's on your mind? What, what's on your heart nowadays? And just, you know, ask him. And, you know, God will take a sip of, you know, whatever beverage he's drinking. And, you know, and he'll say, yeah, you know, Chris, it's kind of, things are kind of busy lately. You know, prayers have been really difficult to manage since 7 billion people are now on the planet. I have ne- never before have I had to deal with such mass quantities of prayers. But, you know, overall, you know, things are still pretty good, you know. And, uh, you know, I've got some thoughts about the upcoming elections in the United States, even though the United States only has 300 billion people, uh, 300 billion, 300 million people. And, you know, I've got a whole lot more people around the planet that I need to be worried about. But, you know, I've got some thoughts about the upcoming election. I'm glad you asked. Here, here you I mean, just the con- the idea is making me crazy. But uh, let's continue. I just started asking, Lord, what's on your heart? Because you hear this thing and you hear that thing. And uh, I had a dream one night. And I had a dream and I was standing in the heavens. And I was standing with the Lord. And uh, in the dream, he was singing a song. You are aware this is just a dream, right? And uh, he was singing, I see America. Looking like a chessboard, I see America covered in black and white. And I started singing with him. I see America. So you were singing with God. You've, you've seen him. And he didn't kill you? Um, you've seen him and you didn't fall on your face as one dead? Weird. So you just, you know, so you were, you were doing a duet with God. Yeah, I've, <laughs> I've heard some crazy things in my life, but I've never once heard anyone claim to have done a duet with God. This is a first. Looking like a chessboard, I see America covered in black and white. And what I saw as I began, because, you know, when we just simply ask the Lord what's on his heart, he tells us because of the spirit of God living within us. And really, you got a verse that says that I felt that I was seeing things from God's perspective. You felt that really. 
And I saw states begin to rise up. I believe this is a real key for the 2012 elections. I can hardly wait to hear this. I do believe that we need to vote righteousness, but I, I, I saw states that rose up that took their states back and began to vote the Bible. I saw states that said we're voting for life. I saw states that rose up and said, we're voting that marriage is between a man and a woman. I saw states literally that began to vote what, what God calls righteousness. They began to vote that way. And, and literally, it was like the sheeps and the goats. I think we're heading into that season. What do you mean it was like the sheeps and the goats? Because that's a parable of punishment and God's judgment on the last day. All right, so uh, so here's the good news. Uh, according, you know, she had a dream, and she in the dream she sang a duet with God, uh, something about a chessboard, and uh, God made her see that uh, that there was a righteous revolt coming in the United States. Okay, but uh, I saw states that did not vote the Bible. I saw states that said, "No, we we want." to choose. Uh, we want to be able to marry a, a man if we're a man. We want, we want whatever our flesh desires. And how is this any different than any normal election cycle in the United States? I mean, doesn't this just sound like every single, there's some states that say no, some states that say yes. I mean, are you equivocating? But I tell you that uh, the Lord stirred my heart that beloved week, it's going to start in the states, and one of the most. Uh... Mm -hmm. It's going to start in the states. Um, hmm. Glad you'd let us know that because you know, can, are there are there any places in the United States that don't have a state? I'm having a hard time picturing that. Powerful point men will be governors and that um, America will be like this, this chessboard where states will rise up and vote for righteousness and vote the Bible and they will literally be like the cities of Goshen. There's like a cities of Goshen around. City of Goshen? What, I thought Goshen was like a, a region of Egypt. Rising. And isn't Goshen the place where the um, Israelites were enslaved? Ooh, I, I don't know if I want that. Now, I, I, do, I see people moving. I see two different things. I saw people literally moving to these areas where they were the white states. But then I also saw the Caleb's and Joshua's moving to the black states again. Uh -huh. So the Caleb's and the Joshua's are moving to the black states. Call you haul okay. Again, well, what am I supposed to do? Ask God. It's not about fear. If you are a Joshua and Caleb, apparently it's not about lucid thought either. Caleb, and you're supposed to go into the land of the giants. I saw people that were point men that literally were going to move to the black states to bring light, to bring love to the black states. And I also saw people moving into the white states because they became states of great blessing. But...
Okay, so, all right, there's states of great blessing, some that are not. If you are a Josh or Caleb, uh, you might want to get a U-Haul and move into the land of the giants. That's what she said. I believe that's going to be a real key for the 2012 elections. And I tell you, if you are one who says, I don't vote, it doesn't matter, I'm telling you, the, the word of the Lord says that your vote matters, that you get... Mm, the word of the Lord says that. So this is directly from God himself to vote and innocent blood was shed so we get to vote and this is how so innocent sh blood was shed so we can vote you're, you're referring to um now you can't be referring to soldiers who lost lost their lives on battlefields because they're not innocent they're sinners are you saying jesus died on the cross so we could vote we can take our states. We can take our states. And I just believe get the blessing of God uh, back, on our, our, back on our states again. And yeah. I believe that I got real keys from heaven on what's getting ready to happen. So yeah. I encourage you, number one, to vote. Yeah. Number two, to pray. Uh -huh. And um, ask God to move in your state because he's going to. Okay. <laughs> Holy guacamole. Um I I'm gonna go um floss my brain out with something to see if I can wash that out. Wow, <laughs> that was horrible. Um if you'd like to email me regarding anything uh, you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. I think I'm going to go rearrange the program a second here, see if we can counter that with something sane. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> How can I help you? Hi, I got this building on certificate from a fellow co-worker, and I came to check it out. Oh, that's nice of your friend. You must be excited. Well, uh, what exactly are we doing here? Oh, you silly man. We're building your very own deity. I don't feel comfortable doing this. Seems sort of like blasphemy. Oh, don't be silly. Everyone does this. Let me help you. First off, you decide whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Well, the Bible talks about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it also says that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day, so he has to be male. You? Okay. Next, we have to define the attributes of your God, like whether he's loving, kind, or compassionate. Well, in the Bible, God is just, he's merciful, he's righteous, and he's wrathful all at the same time. 
Okay then. Well, what is your God's take on sin? He fully condemns it. It's pretty obvious what God thinks of sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Humanity's only hope is in the blood Jesus shed on the cross. Are you saying your God doesn't accept gays? Don't think so. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with hellfire and brimstone because of it. I don't think he has a very high opinion of it. C could you excuse me for one moment? Sure. Hello? Can you get me the mall security? Thank you. <laughs> Sir, I would be a religious terrorist here. <laughs> yes! He's a closed-minded Bible believer. <laughs> yes, I'll distract him while I wait for your men to arrive. Thank you. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Rosebro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor's not preaching Christ, but is preaching himself. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, generous gifts, financial contributions, to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you. You can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will see... Two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 uh, every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, especially here at the end of the year, that would be fantastic to help us help us out. Uh, you can do that by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And it's our way of saying thank you to everybody who contributes uh, to support Fighting for the Faith in the month of December. We will be sending a link out to our ebook uh, that we've been working on for the past few months. It's the Pirate Christian Radio uh, edition of uh, CFW Walther's The Proper Distinction of Long Gospel. And it is literally probably one of the most readable versions I have ever read of that particular book. Truly worth having in your uh, ebook library, and one that you will you you might uh, ref refer to in the future several times because it's just that good. Okay, so here's the deal: I, I made an executive decision after listening to Julie Meyer um, just 
engage in what sounded like pure craziness. Um, uh, you know, uh, singing a duet with God. Um, I've decided I've I've got to counter this with something that's way more sane. And uh, I recently saw a, a link to a video put out by Dr. Vadi Bacham. Bacham? I can't pronounce his name. Anyway, uh, <laughs> he's got this great uh, YouTube video. If you want to find it, go to YouTube.com and just in the search box, type in a sissified needy Jesus. A sissified needy Jesus, because you might want to pass this along with your friends. It's just that good. But uh, here's Vadi, uh, Dr. Vadi. How do you pronounce his last name? Bacham? Bacham? Yeah, I'm, this is not good that I don't know this. But anyway, here, here, here he is. Brokenness over our sin is appropriate because our sin is an affront to a holy God. Listen to what he says. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You, you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. In other words, God, here's what God desires and God delights in and yet... Against you I've sinned. Notice he didn't say against Bathsheba I've sinned. Against Uriah I have sinned. No, against you, God. And ultimately against you only I have sinned. Because who was Uriah but the man that you created? Who was Bathsheba but the servant of the Most High God? I sinned against you. A holy and a righteous God. And that's what worries me about the shack. That's what worries me about the Rob Bells of the world. That's what worries me about those who don't want to preach on sin because people already know that they're bad. <laughs> no, we don't. No, we don't. We watch the nightly news and we think those people are bad, not us. We don't recognize that we have sinned against the holy and righteous God. We don't get that. We don't see that. Turn with me, if you will, to Revelation chapter 19. I just love this. Maybe it says something about my character. But I, I despise the picture that's painted in our culture of this sissified, needy Jesus. Amen? And that's who he is. Amen. Yes, absolutely. Watch what he does here. He's a sissified, needy Jesus. He's just yearning for you. He's longing for you. He wants friendship and relationship with you. He needs you. Oh, you're breaking his heart. No, he's going to break you. I dare Joel Osteen to preach this. Newsflash. By definition, God is self-sustaining, self-existent, and self-sufficient. Therefore, by definition, he needs nothing. God does not need you. 
and he's going to prove it one day because you're going to die and the world's going to keep on spinning at the same rate it was before you were here. And somebody's going to get all your stuff. But what about my audacious dream? He's waiting for you, all right. <laughs> Revelation 19, beginning of verse 11. This is like a Mack truck of truth. Good night. This is awesome. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. He judges and makes war. It's my God. Yeah, I've got some issues, but that's all right. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's my Jesus. That's the God whom I serve, not the sissified Christ that's preached in pulpits around the United States of America. I serve the great God of the universe who gets angry and pours out his wrath. I serve the great God of the universe who demonstrated his wrath when he poured it out on his own son. And it amazes me that we believe this, that God would crush and kill his own son but let you slide. Not for a minute. The spotless, sinless Lamb of God suffered and bled and died because of the wrath of God. That propitiation, the satisfaction of the righteous wrath of God, that's what was experienced on the cross. How dare we take that lightly? <laughs> How dare we take that lightly? Wow, that couldn't have been a starker contrast. Boy, is he right, though. Sissy God who sits up there wringing his hands. Oh, I can't do anything until you, you, you ask me to help you. Oh, please pick me. Please pick me. That's not Jesus. Yeah, what Vadi there just uh, talked about. He preached it from the biblical text. That's Jesus. Great, great point. Okay, looking at my time here. Um, all right, let's see. I got to make a decision. That was easy. From the Business Insider. Businessinsider.com. Headline reads, Rabbi. If Tim Tebow wins the Super Bowl, Christians will start burning mosques and bashing gays. Really? Uh-huh. Okay, just uh, this is uh, by Joe Weisenthal of businessinsider.com from their sports page. Um, 
The story reads, uh, thanks to his deep Christian faith and his miraculous late-game comebacks, the rise of Tim Tebow has obviously prompted a lot of talk about religion and sports and other related ideas. Without a doubt, the most extreme version of this discussion appears in the Jewish Week in an article written by Rabbi Joshua Hammerman entitled, my Tebow problem. What's Haberman's Tebow problem? Well, basically this. Tebow, uh, Tebow's rise is so incredible that if he keeps on doing what he's doing and somehow leads the Denver Broncos to the Super Bowl, then his followers will experience such a wellspring of faith and confidence that they'll start carrying out the most extreme acts imaginable in the name of Christianity. The most stunning paragraph was this, which has, as of today, been edited out of the post. I wonder why, but this was the most extreme paragraph. But it was actually caught by Human Events magazine, and they took a snapshot of it. And here's the, here's the paragraph. Are you ready? If Tebow wins the Super Bowl against all odds, it will buoy his faithful and emboldened faithful can do insane things like burning mosques, bashing gays, and indiscriminately banishing immigrants. While America, oh man, serious. While America has become more inclusive since Jerry Falwell's first political fourways, a Tebow triumph could set those efforts back considerably. I just, uh, wow. Um, correct me if I'm wrong here, um, but isn't it Muslims who kill and murder people? Um, you know, you say, I just think back to when there was, you know, this little cartoon on Cartoon Network, um, yeah, or the Comedy Central, I think. I forget. I, I've never really even watched the program, but... There was a cartoon where they did a cartoon where Muhammad was depicted, and they and they couldn't even depict Muhammad, so they always showed him in a bear costume, and and Muslims were so incensed and, and upset that they rioted, and people actually died, you know, things like that. See, I think I think this rabbi has Christians confused with Muslims, um, because I do. Can you all think of any passages in the Bible or in the New Testament specifically, since it's supposed to be about Christians, where Christians are encouraged to burn mosques? Hmm. You, nothing's coming to mind, um, like at all. Or, or, or I know to bash gays and to take, um, you know, uh, uh, immoral people and uh, and tar and feather them and. You know, and all that kind of stuff. You know, nothing. See, yeah. Um, I think again. I think this rabbi is confusing Christians with Muslims. The story goes on to read. Um, so it says it really goes on like this. Now, the funny thing is that Hammerman seems to admit that if Tebow does win the Super Bowl, it would cause him to have a crisis of faith himself. Apparently this would... So if he won the Super Bowl, this could lead to Tebow leaving Christianity. So, quote, his story is so improbable that if he were to win at all, a part of me would be wondering whether there is a purpose behind it, just as I saw a divine hand in the equally unbelievable Red Sox victory of 2004. Finally, after worrying that Christians will start bashing gays in the event of a Tebow Super Bowl win, the 
piece concludes, unlike some other blue staters, I do not fear people of faith. I fear people of certainty. Hmm. Okay. Well, he seemed kind of certain that Christians would uh, burn down mosques if Tebow led the Denver Broncos to the Super Bowl. So does he fear himself? Anyway, the worldwide struggle going on right now is not between good and evil, but between certainty and doubt. Oh, yeah, because people who have certainty, they're the ones that are the big threat to the planet. Uh, it's all the doubters out there that <laughs> that are ensuring the world to carry on peacefully. Okay, so it cuts across denominational lines. Progressive and modern Orthodox Jews lie on one side of the divide, joining mainline Christians and moderate Muslims, and those on the other side are also Jews, Christians, and Muslims, and the people of certainty. For me, one thing is certain. On Sunday, I'll be pa- praying for the Patriots. Okay, so uh, you know what this um, uh, Haber, Robert, uh, Rabbi Haberman sounds like to me? Um, sounds like he's steeped in post-modernity, um, which is odd f- for a Jewish rabbi to be steeped in something as irrational of a philosophy as post-modernity. Why? Because if you do the research and you take a look at the real roots of post-modern philosophy... Um, it has as its grandparents the very same fascist philosophy that was responsible for murdering six million Jews just not too long ago. Yeah, I know that might sound like an outrageous claim. Do the research. If you'd like to read the book that makes this connection rather clearly, and it's very easy to read, read the book entitled Modern Fascism by Dr. Jean Edward Veith. Um, I think you will find it rather enlightening. All right, moving along, I've got an Albert Muller piece here that I think is worth passing along, entitled, Must We Believe in the Virgin Birth? What do you think Dr. Muller is going to say? Do you think Dr. Muller is going to say, oh, certainty on this subject would cause Christians to burn down mosques and to bash, bash gays, therefore we must be uncertain regarding the virgin birth? And uh, and uh, embrace doubt. Do you think that's what he's going to say? <laughs> well, let me read it. In one of his columns uh, for the New York Times, Nicholas Kristof once pointed to belief in the virgin birth as evidence that conservative Christians are less intellectual. Are we saddled with an untenable doctrine? Is the belief in the virgin birth really necessary? Kristof is absolutely aghast that so many Americans believe in the virgin birth. Quote, The faith in the virgin birth reflects the way American Christianity is becoming less intellectual and more mystical over time, he explains, and the percentage of Americans who believe in the virgin birth actually rose five points in the latest poll. Yikes! Is this evidence of secular backsliding? Well, quote, The virgin birth is an interesting prism through which to examine America's emphasis on faith, Christoph argues, because most biblical scholars regard the evidence for the virgin birth as so shaky that a, that it pretty much has to be a leap of faith. Here's a little hint. Anytime you hear a claim about what most biblical scholars believe, check on just who these illustrious scholars really are. In Christoph's case, he is only concerned about liberal scholars like Hans Kuhn, whose credentials as a Catholic theologian were revoked by the Vatican. The list of what Hans Kuhn 
uh, does not believe would fill a book. Just look at his books. And citing him as an authority in this area betrays Kristoff's determination to stack the evidence or his utter ignorance that many theologians and biblical scholars vehemently disagree with Kung. Kung is the anti-Catholic's favorite Catholic, and that is the real reason why he is so loved by the liberal media. Kristoff also cites the great Yale historian and theologian Yaroslav Pelagin as an authority against the virgin birth, but this is both unfair and untenable. In Mary Through the Centuries, Pelican does not reject the virgin birth, but does trace the development of the doctrine. What are we to do with the virgin birth? The doctrine was among the first to be questioned and then rejected after the rise of historical criticism and the undermining of biblical authority that was inevitable, that inevitably followed. Critics claimed that since the doctrine is taught in only two of the four Gospels, it must be elective. The Apostle Paul, they argued, did not mention it in his sermons in Acts, so he must not have believed it. Besides, the liberal critics argued, the doctrine is just so supernatural. Modern heretics like retired Episcopal Bishop John Shelby Spong argued that the doctrine was just evidence of the early church's overclaiming of Christ's deity. It is, Spong tells us, the entrance myth to go with the resurrection, the exit myth. If only Spong were a myth. <laughs> now, even some revisionist evangelicals claim that belief in the virgin birth is unnecessary. The meaning of the miracle is enduring, they argue, but the historical truth of the doctrine is not really important. Must one believe in the virgin birth to be a Christian? This is not a hard question to answer. It is conceivable that someone might come to Christ and trust Christ as Savior without yet learning that the Bible teaches that Jesus was born of a virgin. A new believer is not yet aware of the full structure of Christian truth. The real question is this. Can a Christian, once aware of the Bible's teaching, reject the virgin birth? The answer must be no. Nicholas Kristof pointed to his grandfather as a devout Presbyterian elder who believed that the virgin birth is a pious legend. Follow his example, Kristof encourages, and join the modern age. But we must face the hard fact that Kristof's grandfather denied the faith. This is a very strange and perverse definition of devout. Matthew tells us that before Mary and Joseph came together, Mary was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. This, Matthew explains, fulfilled what Isaiah promised. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Luke provides even greater detail, revealing that Mary was invited by an angel who explained that she, though a virgin, would bear the divine child. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Even if the virgin birth was taught by only one biblical passage, that would be sufficient to obligate all Christians to the belief. We have no right to weigh the relative truthfulness of biblical teachings by their repetition in Scripture. We cannot claim to believe that the Bible is the Word of God and then turn around and cast suspicion on its teaching. Millard Erickson states this well, quote, 
if we do not hold to the virgin birth, despite the fact that the Bible asserts it, then we have com- compromised the authority of the Bible, and there is, in principle, no reason why we should hold to its other teachings. Thus, rejecting the virgin birth has implications far-reaching beyond the doctrine itself. Implications, indeed. If Jesus was not born of a virgin, who was his father? There is no answer that we could leave the go- that could leave the gospel intact. The virgin birth explains how Christ could be both God and man, how he was without sin, and the entire work of salvation is God's gracious act. If Jesus was not born of a virgin, he had a human father. If Jesus was not born of a virgin, uh, the Bible teaches a lie. Carl F.H. Henry, the dean of evangelical theologians, argued that the virgin birth is the essential historical indication of the Incarnation, bearing not only an analogy to the divine and human natures of the Incarnate, but also bringing out the nature, purpose, and bearing of this work of God to salvation. Well said and well believed. Nicholas Kristof and his secularist friends may find belief in the virgin birth to be evidence of intellectual backwardness among American Christians, but this is the faith of the church established in God's perfect word and cherished by the true church throughout the ages. Kristof's grandfather, we are told, believed that the virgin birth is a pious legend. The fact that he could hold such beliefs and serve as an elder in his church is evidence of that church's doctrinal and spiritual laxity. Or worse, those who deny the virgin birth affirm other doctrines only by force of whim, for they have already surrendered the authority of Scripture. They have undermined Christ's nature and nullified the incarnation. This much we know. All those who find salvation will be saved by the atoning work of Jesus Christ, the virgin-born Savior. Anything less than this is just not Christianity. Whatever it may call itself, a true Christian will not deny the virgin birth. Mm. Great article. I don't think I could have added a single thing to it. Really, can I, when it comes to an Albert Muller piece? But there you have it. Some great tweetable quotes, too. I think I might be doing some of that today. All right, we're up on our second break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Sermon review time when we get back. We don't need to rethink Christianity, we need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. 
Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review time. Got a new church in the mix, and I have subscribed to their podcast to add them to my ever-growing collection, the world's largest single collection of abysmal sermons on the planet, at least on one hard drive. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Milestone Church in Keller, Texas. The name of the sermon is Believe. This is week two of their this current year's Christmas sermons. And this is pa- uh, preached by Pastor Jeff Little. Now, this is a unique sermon. And the reason I say that is because he's not drawing valid inferences from the biblical text that he's preaching from. It's interesting to watch. The text says one thing, he says something different. The text says this, he says therefore that. It's, a, it's kind of strange to watch, and as a result of it, um, this is an example of what I would consider to be very well-disguised eisegesis. Listen carefully for what he thinks the gospel is and what it's all about. You're going to hear a gospel nugget or something similar to it, which is kind of rare nowadays from a church like Milestone Church, seeker-driven, attractional. So without any further ado, let me kill the music here and let's dive right into it. Let uh, Here is uh, Pastor Jeff Little and his sermon entitled, Believe. Well, I want to welcome you to the second week of our Christmas series entitled, Believe. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke. We've provided some notes there for you as well. Luke chapter 2 is where we're going to go. We're going to look at verses 22 through 33. I want to tell you a story within the Christmas story. I want to talk about maybe a little bit of an obscure story in that, and I want to relate it to something very practical in your life. You see, there... Okay, already we're off on a bad note. Okay, Uh, Luke chapter 2, we're going to find an obscure story that somehow is practical to our life. The assumptions sound wrong. Here's the deal. There are some things in the Bible that just ain't practical for your life. No matter how you slice it, no matter how you dice it, doesn't matter if you use Ginsu knives or the latest uh, veggie chopper, 
It doesn't matter. It's just not going to seem all that relevant to your life. I mean, when was the last time you applied the doctrine of the Trinity to your life or, you know, for something relevant, some important burning issue that you were experiencing at work or maybe in your marriage? You know, you know see, not every doctrine does that. Not everything in the scriptures does that. And <clears throat> nothing personal, uh, Pastor Little, but um, here's the issue is that I've become really cynical of pastors in the seeker-driven, attractional church movement who talk, who find these obscure passages and make it about me. Um, you know, like in a pit with a lion on a snowy day, um, sun stands still, you know, stuff like that. Um, you know, shadow go backwards. So I, I, I'm already just a little bit on the defensive side. Um Okay, let's follow along. There are a couple of things that I really know about this time of year. One is that every week of the year, life is happening to people. Right. Yes, every week of the year, life is happening to people. I'm not even sure how that's even remotely beneficial to anybody. Yes, that's like saying every day, people who are alive breathe. And so we need to discuss breathing. Yes, uh, it's true that every day people breathe. Okay. People are struggling, walking through challenges. You may be in a season of life right now where you have some missed expectations in your life. I, I might be in a season of my life where I have missed expectations. I mean, this so uh, sounds like the quarterly stock report, you know. I mean, seriously. I mean, you know, honey, let's sit down and do our quarterly uh, expectation analysis. Okay, I expected this, and I got that. Hmm. Okay, well, that's all right. We weren't too far off expectations. I expected this to happen, and then, ooh, 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 yeah, that's off. So, yeah, uh, so, and then, you know, put out the, the, the you know, quarterly, you know, stockholder letter to let you know, how well you um, fared in your quarter's expectations. Weird. It just, here's the deal. Um, people experience the wages of sin, and, and they suffer little mini-deaths on their way to the big death. You know what I'm saying? I mean, so, for instance, okay, um, let me use my brother as an example. My brother has a brain tumor, hasn't been operated on yet, and we don't know what to expect. But see, here's the deal. When we sit down at the end of the at the end of the month and we do our quarterly expectation analysis, we would come to the conclusion, well, we didn't expect to see that coming. But here's the deal. Okay, my brother trusts Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of his sins. So we don't know what's going to happen next Thursday. It, the, the doctor might say, I've got fantastic news. It's completely non-malignant. We took the mass out. It should never come back. Um, he, he'll be well, just, you know, it, he needs to heal and stuff like that, but he should be back and up and at him and back at work within a few months. That might be uh, what we get. Okay. We talk about an expectation uh, or we might get the news. Okay. This is not good. Um, your brother needs to get his stuff in order. Um, this is an aggressive cancer. We got as much of it as we can out, but yeah, it's yeah, um, yeah. The, it, the chances of surviving this are slim to none. He'll be dead within X amount of time. This is a real scenario. This isn't hypothetical for me. This is the real thing. Okay, I don't know if 
a year from now, I'm going to have a brother breathing on, on the planet with me. And this isn't a, a missed expectation. This is a completely screwed up and terrible situation. As a result of it, um, it makes me see the world for what it really is. A place where there's more than just missed expectations. There's real bona fide wages and consequences to sin. Sin is not just some abstract concept. It's a very real thing with very real consequences that play out very differently in each one of our lives. And when you have missed expectations, okay, let's just face it. Missed expectation could be a failed marriage. It, missed expectation could be something like a, a challenging job that you're suffering through. A missed expectation could be a child who has a terminal disease or a brother who has a brain tumor. And calling them missed expectations when you really face what they really are sounds like a euphemism. Sounds like you're not really taking the issue seriously because all of these are the consequences of the big thing, and that's our sinful rebellion against God. So some pastor coming along trying to help us you know, apply principles to our lives so that, you know, if you have some missed expectations, maybe on the next cycle, those expectations can be met. Seems like he's applying a Band-Aid to somebody who's, well, got a brain tumor. Your life, things may not be working out like you really thought they should or would. You, you may be walking through some, some just challenging circumstances. We all go through those seasons. We go through... Yeah, right, yeah, uh-huh the valleys in life. We go through those moments again where uh, we face things. We face life challenges. I had some time off leading up to the Christmas season and just began to pray. Yeah, face life challenges. Again, it sounds like a euphemism, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. So this we're being sensitive here. Again, let, let me come back to my current situation with my brother. I don't know if my brother's going to be alive in a year. Um, you got anything for that? Because right now, you preaching this way to me is actually making me angry. Because we're not dealing with missed expectations or boo-boos or maybe some seasons of, you know, maybe some challenges. I need something real for the very real consequences of sin that's really affecting my real family member right now. And I know that biblical Christianity addresses it. Why aren't you? Not just to do a series that would culturally connect, although this series does culturally connect because... At this time of year, everybody wants to believe in something that there's just sort of this mystical Christmas spirit where something good can happen, yet that's contrasted against the fact that because of the pressure of the season, maybe the reminiscent side of it, the the, the more interaction with family that you don't normally interact with, we, we, we tend to have surfacing 
of a lot of our problems and challenges. Yet at this time, again, we, we do want to believe, you know, and again, maybe the, the, the Christmas spirit, we've got all these movies, you know, that come out and, and the miracles on 32nd, 34th or whatever it is and the, and the bell rings and the angel gets the wings and then we teach our kids, you know, to believe in this crazy story when you think about it, that, that there's this big fat guy with a beard and a red suit, you know, that uh, makes all these toys in the, the most inhospitable environment in the entire world, um, and yet he makes them, but then where does he get the money to buy all the supplies to make them? But then he gets those toys, and in one night, he gets on a sleigh that has flying reindeer nonetheless. And this guy's sermon is aggravatingly shallow for me right now. And flies around. Because it doesn't even remotely address the challenges I'm currently facing. Uh, you know, he enters basically by breaking and entering uh, into people's houses down the chimney nonetheless. But if you don't have a chimney, then he has a magical key, which he opens up the front door. And, you know, myself being from East Texas, you know, I'm just wondering why the guy's not ever been shot by this point in life. Um, but maybe that's why he wears red instead of black. You know, I don't know, just to be identified. Ho, ho, ho. But anyway, I, I know he's, he's also driving around the Metroplex now. A friend of mine saw him in an F-150 yesterday. So, I mean, <laughs> he's everywhere, right? So, anyway, so we, we just kind of have, again, you know, not to be too corny, but we kind of have this feeling, man, Maybe something good will happen. Maybe something good will happen at Christmas time. Maybe it'll be the hap, hap, happiest time for me this year. Yet depression is at an all-time high, pressures, challenges, circumstances. And again, as I begin to pray for you, I begin to pray about this. Whether it's Christmas or any time of the year, throughout life, there's an ingredient that you need in your life. There's a there's a spiritual ingredient. It's, it, it's simple at some level, yet somewhat challenging to really grab a hold of and live by. And that is this ingredient in the subtitle of our series where we, we said you can find faith at Christmas time. You need faith in your life. And I, I need faith in my life. Why are you selling this like an infomercial guy? Why are you selling this to me, trying to convince me that I need to purchase this thing called faith? Like, you know, add it to my collection of Ginsu knives, or if I act now, you'll throw in a free sham wow. I need faith in my life? What does the sentence even mean? Faith in whom? Faith in what? Faith in whom or what for what? What are you talking about? I believe it's something that's that's maybe uh, been taught in different extremes, not really been brought to people from a holistic Bible perspective. Some Faith talked about from a holistic Bible perspective. Some people have never heard about it. Others have maybe abandoned the concept. Others, when you say the word faith, there's a whole host of ideas about that. I mean, are you talking about different religions or different denominations, different persuasions? No, no. I want to talk about it in the most simplest form. In fact, last week, we started by talking about what is faith from a biblical perspective. What is faith? Is it just this nebulous thing out there that you're trying to get a hold of? 
Now, we learned last week, and before we get to Luke 2, I want to give you a theme verse that, that, that really talks about faith. Romans 1.16. I'm going to put it on the screens. It says, For I am not ashamed, Paul speaking, of the gospel. Well, what's the gospel? The gospel is the good news. It- okay, now, I, you listen carefully to what he's saying here. Now, I mean, we're not in Luke chapter 2. He's bringing in part of Romans chapter 1. I should be, you know clapping at this point, excited, because, I mean, Romans is one of the clearest places to go to that lays out the proper distinction of law and gospel, the proper place of understanding justification by grace through faith. So here we are in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. He's preaching from the NIV, and the text says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the the power. This is the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. It goes on to say, from faith to faith. Okay, so let's see where he goes with this. It's it's the story. It's what we just sang about. Jesus, Lord at thy birth. Jesus comes, and it's not just some crazy thing out there, you know, but it's Jesus, a real person who wants to come into our lives. And the good news is, through Jesus... Despite the fact that you've come in here, you've made mistakes. You may- They're called sins. You may have heard a bunch of religious dialogue. You're trying to think, man, this is confusing. How do I really have faith? Well, again, it, it centers around the person, Jesus Christ. Yeah, it does, but you're not really explaining it. Jesus comes. He dies on the cross. He lives a sinless life. He raises from the dead. He wants to have a relationship with you today. Uh-huh. Okay, yeah, it's true. Jesus dies on the cross and raises from the dead. Yes. What's that for? Why do I why does why did Jesus need to die? And why are you talking about the gospel as something that, you know, got to have faith, you know? I I I need faith like it's some kind of a principle that somehow I or maybe jet fuel in my tank or something. You know, I you're like, Jeff, I just feel like I'm searching for something. Uh-huh. I'm searching for something. Something's yeah, clarity in your preaching. Missing in my life. Well, friend, let me tell you what it is. It's not something. It's someone. It's Jesus. It's a real... Well, great. Tell me a little bit more about him because just throwing his name out doesn't say much. Real relationship with Jesus. I'm not talking about some little religious thing. I'm talking about a day where you just go, Jesus, I want you and I want all of you. Paul says this. He says, I'm not ashamed of that gospel. You are aware of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where the apostle Paul makes it clear what the gospel is that he preached. He lays it out and defines it. The gospel that Paul preached is this. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I want you to remember the gospel that I preached to you. The one that you believed and held on to. The one you were being saved by, right? And here it is. That Christ Jesus was crucified for our sins, according to the scriptures. Was raised again on the third day, according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and to the other disciples and to 500 other people. You, You get what I'm saying here? The good news is that Christ Jesus was crucified, died and was buried and rose again on the third day for our sins and for our justification. 
So when Paul's talking about, I'm not ashamed of the gospel or the good news, because the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, he's specifically talking about the good news that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again on the third day. Hmm. Why am I not ashamed? Because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. It's the power you're looking for in your life right now. That gospel. Mm-hmm. The gospel is the power I'm looking for in my life right now. We've just changed the definition of power. I mean, it doesn't say in Romans chapter 1 that the gospel is the power for everyday life. It says it's the power that brings salvation. It says this, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. We no longer have to be righteous or right standing with God on the basis of our own merits. But be yes. because we have a relationship with Jesus, we get his righteousness. A right uh, sloppy way of talking about it, but okay. Righteousness that is by faith from first to last. So, so what's happening here? What it's saying is, is that until you get a hold of this Jesus through the message of the gospel, you, you have no substance. You have no power. You have no, as the Bible says, anchor for your soul. Really? There's a Bible passage that says without Jesus and without, I don't have an anchor for my soul. Oh boy. The winds of life, the pressures of life, the circumstances that are going to come to all of us, you have nothing to grab a hold of until you have a relationship with the person, Jesus Christ. Have you ever talked to a non-believer who seems to have his act all together? I mean, how are you going to convince that person they need Jesus? They're going to sit there and go, listen, what are you talking about, okay? I've got a 4,000-square-foot home. i got a trophy wife. I drive a Porsche. My wife drives a Beamer. We've got 3.5 children. I coach Little League, and my 401K is just doing great despite the terrible economy. And you're going to try to convince me that my life needs an anchor called Jesus. Yeah, sorry, but uh, we seem to be doing okay already. Why would I need Jesus? You see, the way he's pitching Jesus here, he's not pitching Jesus the way the scriptures pitch him. He's trying to apply Jesus to your relevant life, you know, seasons where things are not exactly going right. And, you know, expectations have been missed. And, um, yeah, uh, the thing is, is that if you would preach repentance and Christ and him crucified for our sins, for the forgiveness of our sins, then it doesn't matter how well adjusted the pagan may be listening to this um, sermon they're going to know that they need Jesus. You preach the law and tell them that they're a sinner and they're going to face the wrath of God. Stop looking at your circumstances around you to try to figure out whether or not you have God's favor or not. And instead, look at his word. See how you measure up to the Ten Commandments. And if you're not measuring up, understand this. Without your sins being forgiven in faith and trust in Christ, you haven't, you haven't got a snowball's chance in Hades of avoiding Hades. You get what I'm saying here? By pitching Jesus the way he's pitching Jesus, not everybody might feel like they need him. He comes to live on the inside of you, and now you have this starting place of faith. 
Last weekend, we baptized over 55 people here at Milestone Church, people that have made the decision to place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And I'm believing from that point, does that mean no other problems are going to come into their life? No, that's not what that means. What it does mean is in the midst of their problems, they have Jesus. They have- what do they have him for? In the midst of their problems, they've got Jesus. Have Jesus from now to eternity. They have Jesus to help give them perspective, to give them life, to give them hope, to give them assurance. Hope and assurance for what? It's like a man last Saturday night. Last Saturday night, a man in our service, I talked about what is faith and your need for Jesus. At the end of the service, we're sort of breaking up. There was a ministry team down here. He talked to me at 101 on Sunday night where he had a lot of people come to 101. Now, he's the first guy I met. I walked in. I'm kind of getting my microphone on. Walked up to this man. He began to describe to me a host of scenarios in his life. And I'm a pastor. I was overwhelmed by everything he said. I mean, he was like, this happened, this happened, this happened. Pastor, it's all happening to me right now. And I'm just like, wow. I just, I can't believe all of that. It's like all these things. Every ba- You're a pastor and this is catching you off guard. You do understand that you're supposed to not be caught off guard by all the circumstances and the consequences of a sinful and fallen world. Bad thing you can think. It's like they all happen to him right now. I'm thinking, man, if I did this series just for him, it's been worth it. Because as I prayed for you and I prayed for him, this is what I was praying for. That in the midst of those kind of life challenges, you can have real faith and real hope. And you know what happened? Faith and hope for what? Happened to him Saturday night. I preached about what is faith. He he said he was in his mind justifying the fact that I'm not going up there, even though he knew he needed to know about this Jesus. And he said, I began to be so overcome by conviction, so overcome by the presence of God, I could not go up there. He grabbed Pastor Derek's hand. He received Jesus Christ as his personal Lord and Savior. And friends, I believe that's the most important decision you could ever make, no matter what's going on in your life. What's Jesus supposed to save him from, his terrible situations? How many of y'all still believe that's the greatest miracle? Jesus coming into your life. And so he made that decision. Now, here's what's interesting. It doesn't stop there, though. Look what it says. In the second week, I want to talk about this. It says, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So we don't just start a faith. We now, after that decision, live by faith. So, it- And what does that mean again? Because I don't even know if what you're saying makes any sense. I mean, you were building now on sand. You laid the sand down and now we're building on it. I think this whole thing's going to come crashing down. Everything that comes into our world, we look at through the lens of that original decision to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So I'd like to... T- what am I trusting Jesus for again? Talk to you about what it means to live by faith over in Luke chapter 2, a kind of, again, part of the Christmas story. What I love about the Christmas story is the whole thing is a story of faith. It's, it's really a crazy story. I mean, Jesus lorded thy birth, the incarnation, God himself being born in human form. When you think about that, it's just mind-blowing. And yet there were real people on the scene. There were real characters in this story who God had to speak to by angels and by the Spirit, and they had to put their faith in the fact that this, again, most important story ever, they had to to believe it. They had to trust it. 
And, and you again, these are real people. It's really pretty crazy. And so, uh, as we believe what, trust what, for what? We've looked at, at, at some of the story, and I don't have time to tell you about all the cast of characters. There is kind of a main, uh, a main set of characters. You see them in your nativity set, right? We're not going to talk about one that made the nativity set. I, I just want to pause here. It officially bugs me when a seeker-driven pastor is in a biblical text and says, Oh, I don't have time you know, to, to read it and give you the whole story. Why not? You guys preach for like 30, 40, 50 minutes. You don't think you can wedge into that time slot, you know, a full passage reading from the Word of God? Brandy and I have a nativity set. Uh, we, we had it, we were early in our marriage, we went to Israel. Notice he has time to talk about his nativity set that he purchased from Israel. And so uh, a guy made it out of real olive wood, and so we have this nativity set. And it's a but he doesn't have time to read the, the account of Jesus' birth from Luke chapter 2, but we can talk about his nativity set big deal at our house who gets to set up the nativity set and so the kids have set it up over the years and, and you know we put it uh, in different places in the house and so um, I was looking at it though um, just the other day as they were putting it up I'm thinking these cast of characters uh, my, my nativity set needs some faith because they're really struggling in life they got some bad circumstances we got a three-legged camel man I mean we've got this thing. No, no, okay, so the illustration here is telling you the gospel he's preaching. Oh man, th my nativity set needs some faith in life because, yeah, it's got some some terrible circumstances. Ah, so apparently Jesus is supposed to just help you through life's circumstances. It's taken a beating over the years of our marriage. I mean, we've got uh, the wise men used to be three. I think now they're two. We had a sheep, I think, in our set that just wandered off. We don't even know where he went. It's like we should leave the 99 and go find this sheep. I mean, he's out there lost. Um, uh, and, and here's really what's bad. The Holy Family, they're not doing so good either. Um, we got a one-legged Jesus, man, in our nativity. One-legged Jesus. Something's wrong. I don't know how I would replace it. But anyway, so our nativity set struggling. You know, you can pray for ours. But anyway, this story, Luke chapter 2, verse 22, again, a guy who didn't make the nativity scene, but yet a very powerful story. Let's look at it. It's a man named Simeon. Look what it says. When the time came... For the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him. Who is him? Him is Jesus. This young Jewish family take their son, this firstborn son, Jesus, which we also know to be, again, the Messiah and God. But in the natural, this is a family who's going to do something very customary, very ordinary for what they would do with their son. It says, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And so this is, as if you will, like a dedication of Jesus. It says, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Again, this family, they're going to dedicate Jesus. Mary and Joseph come. They're going to dedicate him. They're going to make some sacrificial offerings. And, and so this is a very customary event. Now, Luke's telling us that. And then he sort of takes a right turn, and he introduces another person in the Christmas story. He says, there was a man in Jerusalem, and he was called Simeon. Can I point out the obvious here? Um, this is actually not a Christmas story. This is an epiphany story. 
Yeah, this is a text that people normally preach on during the season of Epiphany. Look at how it describes him. And again, we don't get a lot of insight into the detail. There's really just a little bit here, but I think there's a profound point that is being made. It says, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And so scholars believe here, again, again, why is this in the story? Well, it's just another element of this most important story, the message of Jesus. We, we know for all this period of time, hundreds, thousands of years, millennia, there had been this waiting for this Messiah. And yet here's a man who's a part of the wait. He's a part of this time gap between what God was wanting to do and desired to do. And so we see his faith in action. And I think it's some, some things, again, the primary application to this passage is, again, God's big story about Jesus and, and how he brought it to pass in the ordinary, everyday lives of people and wants Jesus to come into our worlds today. But yet, I think there's also... Uh, what? also something about him as a person that God's communicating to us uniquely. In the same way we learned last week that Mary, you know, had, had this outlook and she understood this favor, yet she had to have all these real emotions. And we see all these other people, uh, the wise men who offer gifts and how God interacts with them in different ways. Simeon, what is God saying by putting Simeon in the story? Well, I think he's um. <laughs> What is God saying by putting Simeon in the story? Um, boy, do I think we're going to be heading in the wrong direction with this question. Talking a little bit about what it means to live by faith. And one primary area that we see right off the bat is this idea of time and waiting. What? I'm talking about living by faith. And if you're going to live by faith, then there's always going to be involved in that time and waiting. Now, I'll read you a... Uh, was Simeon going through his manger period, or do you think that uh, he was uh, he had already come out of his exile in Egypt period to where he was going through his baptismal period and all that kind of... Notice at this point we're allegorizing the text so that we can somehow make it into a piece of elastic silly putty and wrap it around your life. Another verse in a minute... That, that shows you why scholars believe that Simeon probably waited a long time. For one, it tells us here he wouldn't die. And why would the Bible mention that if he probably was not close to or at least up in age where that's a possibility? And, and so he's probably up in age and most believe, based on, again, another phrase I'll read in a second, that this probably was a pretty long time wait. And, and just quite frankly, friends... It's not a character personality trait that is very common among us today. I mean, how many of you, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, you've got to be honest in church, God is watching, would say, Pastor, I'm great at waiting. In fact, it's one of my favorite things to do, just waiting for it to come to pass. Let me. Are you really trying to take the Simeon passage and turn this into a, a, a story about the importance of patience? Oh, yeah. You just have a little bit more of that. Can I wait longer? I'm just, just really enjoying this whole waiting aspect in life. I just love waiting. 
Well, again, they'd been waiting a long time for the Messiah. This guy probably, possibly had been waiting most of his life for the Messiah. And yet, again, time is so interesting in this whole waiting idea. You know, it's like when, when, we're, when we're doing something we really love, because time, there's a little bit of a relative sense to this, but also a, a concrete sense, and that is that time doesn't typically stop. God can stop it, has stopped it, but he doesn't typically stop it. I mean, what does this have to do with anything? Time marches on. And so life continues to happen and time happens. And what's interesting is that in, in the area of time, when you're doing something that you love, it just seems to fly by. And what does this have to do with Simeon again? But, but when you get in a faith trial, when you get in a press, when you get in those moments where you're in the in-between, I call it the gap. When you're in the gap between what God has said and God revealing himself and showing up and delivering what he said. You, you are aware that Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 22, makes it clear that God told Simeon personally um, that he would not die until he saw the Messiah. Are you implying that somehow I'm going to be receiving direct revelation from God promising me particular things in my life and as soon as I get the promise I'm going to be in the gap and so I've got to learn how to be patient so I can get through the gap this this is not what the Simeon story is about when you get in that gap period if you will in the valley before the peak of provision you know we all like the yeah in the valley before the peak of provision right after the manger experience live on the peak of provision, you know? And, and you'll have those moments with God, by the way. You'll have those moments. God is so good. He's so gracious. He's so overflowing in his abundance. And those of you that haven't walked with God for something, you're going to have some of those moments with God. You're just going to have those moments where there's such a richness of God's supply and God's showing up in your life where you're looking around going, I can't believe this. I can't believe this. And it's just like, man, it's happening and God's showing up. You're going to have some of those peaks of provisions. Let me tell you what else you're going to have. You're going to have some of those valleys of decision. Mm -hmm. Where's the peak of provision or the valley of decision mentioned in the Simeon text again? You're going to have some of those. And some of you are like, I man, totally I'm in one of that, those. By and the you way. think it's real deep. Well, here's the good news. The deeper the valley on the backside of the valley, deep valleys produce high peaks. So, so <sighs> Really? You got a biblical verse that says the deep valleys produce high peaks. And again, what does this have to do with the Simeon passage? So if you're in a deep, deep valley, well, you're headed toward a higher peak probably, okay? So just that, that'll encourage you when you're walking through that valley or you're walking through that gap. You're in that in-between time. It's like, I know God told me to do this. I yeah, and like I said, um, this is not how you read the Bible. This is another example of what I'm becoming very too familiar with, all too familiar with, in a, like in a way that I wish I wasn't. Um, a form of twisting the Bible that I have dubbed narcissistic eisegesis. Somehow we're going to read our story into the text because, you know, everyone knows that the Simeon story is about you, and it's not. I know it's going to happen, but, but I'm in the gap right now. I'm in the in-between. What do I do? Well, I think there's some things about Simeon, just what we see here with what the Bible tells us that we might could apply. They're, they're somewhat, again, fairly simple, but I think very profound when it comes to how are you going to deal with living a life of faith when you're in between what God has spoken and God actually manifesting that in your life. How do you walk by 
faith in those moments. Well, yeah, okay. <clears throat> Since my emotions are raw, let me again remind you, Pastor, my brother has a brain tumor. I haven't heard nothing from God, and neither has he. And if he were saying that he was hearing directly from God, I'd attribute it to the brain tumor. And we're in the in-between phase at this point because we have no idea how this thing's going to shake out. But I don't see nothing in the Simeon text that is going to apply anything to do with having faith or whatever regarding my brother. Should I assume that if my brother doesn't make it, that he didn't have God's favor and he didn't have faith? Or maybe I should just assume that he didn't hear the promise. You got anything for the real situation that I'm really facing with a real family member who's really in a lot of danger? And the reason he's in danger, because like me, he's a sinner. And the wages of sin is death. Do you have any hope in a hopeless situation like that? Number one that I see here is you've got to surrender to God's plan. Really, the Simeon story says that Simeon surrendered to God's plan. I said Jesus. And that's a common pattern throughout the scriptures and and I've said it for years. I just, I just love the Bible. I love the way it tells us the real story. I love it shows us that they make mistakes and they make missteps. And it shows us people who live by faith. There's people- yeah, because, you know, when David slept with Bathsheba, that was a mistake and a misstep. When Absalom tried to kill his father David, whoops, that was a mistake and a misstep. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God and, you know, they ate the fruit that God told them not to and listened to the snake, yeah, that was a mistake. Uh-huh, yeah, you get what I'm saying here? People that are like, man, I wish I could have lived in the Bible times. I don't know if I want to be in the Bible. I mean, God asked them to do some crazy stuff. And yet they had to, by faith, trust that what God said is true and continue to walk it out. We see some crazy, crazy things. One that I just want to point out, and they were bringing it up on the screen. You guys can bring it back up. Hebrews eleven eight says, By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance. Here's just a little example as we move off of Simeon for a second. It says, He obeyed and he went even though he did not know where he was going. God told Abraham to leave this place and walk toward this city whose architect and builder is God and he had to walk without really knowing totally how it would work out and and, and we're not real good at that we're just not it's like tell me the plan tell me the strategy tell me how it's gonna work can we get a little organized detailed list a punch list of how God's gonna do it and it's like man when could you tell me when God the date the time just the time. That would help me because if you'll do that, and, and again, God's, God's always, and something you need to understand that, that we see here, God asked of us to surrender to, to his plan, ultimately surrender to him, but to surrender to his plan. You got any verses that say that God wants us to surrender to his plan? Because I have no idea what you're talking about. And what he does is, is, and you need to know this about God. God does want to show up in our lives. He does care about what's on your heart. Well, that's great. But one of the things you need to know about him as we read all these stories, he's much more concerned about you than he is the plan. 
He's much more concerned about your heart. He's How are you getting any of this out of the Simeon story? It just sounds like you're making stuff up and shoving it into the biblical text to try to make it look like it's really biblical. We say it this way. He's more concerned with, with doing something in you than he is about doing something through you. He's more concerned with the who than he is the what. You know, he's in the miracle working business. He's got that part handled. Like Miracle Max from The Princess Bride? And so he's expecting you to trust his plan and let him handle that part of it. But in the middle of it, sometimes you're in the middle of the valleys and you're in those middle times, those gap times. Because yeah, what if I'm in a desert or what if I happen to be, you know, in a in a tropical region, you know, and, you know, there isn't a lot of hills and valleys, but it's kind of level and flat. What if I find myself in a topography that's similar to the state of Florida and you know rather than hills and valleys it's just really flat with lots of swamps and alligators you know you got anything for that he wants you he wants you to be close to him and he wants you to press into him and he wants you to surrender at a greater level to him and he wants you to trust in him at a greater level because guess what he's always preparing you in the valleys to have the character to handle the peaks. Oh yeah, so it's all about my density, got it. He's always preparing you with the decisions you make in the valleys, he's... He, he's yeah, again, do you have any verses that say any of these things? Because this ain't found in Luke chapter two, starting in verse 22. Um, it just really sounds like you're making all this stuff up always doing something in you. And, and, and again, I'm not, again, the most experienced person or knowledgeable on every subject. But, but after years of walking with God and after 17 years of pastoring people, here's something I do want. It may encourage you. It may not. I, I very seldom meet people who come to me and go, you know what? Everything in my life is happening faster than I thought. It's just happening faster. It's like, it's all there. It's all there. It's typically exactly reverse. It's always, I, I thought it would happen faster. I thought it would have already happened. I, I, I thought it would have already taken place. I, I just thought, you know, and, and we get these dreams, and they're God dreams, right? And, and What? So we get these dreams, and they're God dreams. How do you know it's just not a bad piece of pepperoni from a pizza that she ate the previous night before? And so we're like, man, and we think we're going to wake up tomorrow and bam, there it is. When really God, again, is much more concerned with things like the who. He's more concerned with you. He's more concerned with your surrender to his plan. And so God's working in us. You say, and, and by the way, it says here that the Holy Spirit was on Simeon. Yeah. Now, he was a special person that had the ability to understand what he was supposed to surrender to. Uh, and uh, where in the text does it say Simeon was a special person who had this special ability? And at this time, the Holy Spirit just rested on certain people. Here's the good news today. Today, because of what Jesus did on the cross, and then Jesus dies, and he says, guess what? I'm going to heaven, you know, and I'm going to better off that I do, because I'm going to leave you the Holy Spirit, and he'll guide you in truth, and he'll comfort you, and he'll walk with you. And, and so there's some of you here today, you're like, Jeff, you're talking about other people when you're talking about having a plan. Uh-huh. So you, you can be just like Simeon. God, the Holy Spirit's going to rest on you, speak plans into your life. 
and then you gotta then you immediately go into the valley stage and you got and depending on the depth of your valley that'll determine the height of your summit that's the theology that's been preached in this sermon thus far any of this biblical yeah not any of it like God wants to give me his plan, like God wants to do things in my life. I don't know if anyone's ever told you this, but God has a plan for your life. God, God is doing stuff right now around your life. If okay, and what if God's plan for my brother is for him to die of, of a brain tumor within the year? Hmm? Should I assume that God had a really crummy plan and maybe we can... You know, you know, and make. I might want to reassess the, whatever plan God has for me and see if I can get an upgrade. You know, so because I don't want that kind of plan for my life. I mean, I'd like some, you know, fame and fortune and, you know, maybe a little bit of, you know, significance. You know, some kind of major important mover and shaker change the world kind of thing. Uh, you know, I, I don't. I, I may not like the plan that uh, other people have got, but I, you know, I, I'd like something really that makes me look good. You're here and you're discouraged and you're like, it's not working out and you have these thoughts, you know, that man, maybe I miss God, maybe I, maybe I blew it, maybe, maybe I got just removed from the team or, or maybe, maybe when God was looking for talented players and having the tryouts, I didn't meet the skills and so I'm not on the team or God doesn't have a plan for me or I want you to know something, if no one's ever told you this and I'm always amazed by the number of people who don't know this. Probably because it's not taught in the Bible. The Holy Spirit is actively looking across the whole earth, searching to and fro yeah. for people that he can show up and speak to and do God's stuff in their lives. Uh, can you define God's stuff? You know, because <clears throat> are you familiar with the God stuff that happened to the Apostle Paul? I mean, I mean, when you look at the fine print there... Um, uh, uh, it may not be something that uh, that you want or even I want. And you are familiar with the litany of uh, things that the Apostle Paul made clear happened to him as a result of, well, you know, his work in uh, preaching the gospel and all the God stuff that happened in his life. You are aware of that, right? In fact, if you have your Bible, um, flip on over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Let's take a look at some of the God stuff that was all part of the big plan that God had for the Apostle Paul. I, I think you'll find this rather interesting. Yeah, here's what it says. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse like 22, talking about the super apostles. Paul writes, he says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the offspring of Abraham? Well, so am I. Are they servants of Christ? Well, I'm a better one. <clears throat> Talking like a madman. For with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Yeah, can, can I opt out of plans like that? Three times I was beaten with rods. That doesn't sound fun. That he, Three times he was caned. Once I was stoned, and he's not talking about drug use. Three times I was shipwrecked. At night and a day I was adrift at sea. I'm sure that was all kinds of fun. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, 
through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches, who's weak and I'm not weak, who's made to fall and I'm not indignant. Yeah, sign me up. Yeah, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Just don't pay attention to the details of the small print when you sign it because you may not understand that you're signing up to be eaten by lions or to experience pain and suffering like you've never experienced or hunger or you know your life being in mortal danger from false brothers and from people who hate you and want you dead. Um, Yeah, God loves you has a wonderful plan for your life. Sign me up. This is not just for special people like preachers and others. It's for all of you today. It's like a Bible study that we do with our youth called Experiencing God. I've done it several times. One of the things I love in that is it says, it's not our job to devise the plan. It's not our job. Our job is to submit to God and His plan and just open our eyes to where God's around us moving and join Him in what He's doing. The fact you're here today is... That's Blackaby. Um, yeah, not something you want anybody to be a part of. Wow. And where does the Bible teach any of that stuff? Find what God's doing and join Him. Uh-huh. It's, it's an indicator that God's wanting to do something with you. It's not the last chapter of the book. It's not over. He wants to speak to you. He wants to use you. He wants, he's given you unique talents, unique gifts, unique things that he put in you before you were ever formed in your mother's womb. He put those things in you and wants to do those things. But a lot of times we get fired up and kind of like, I got a plan from God. I got a dream, man, that God's going to do this. And we get excited about it. And yeah, notice that the Simeon text doesn't say any of this. We begin to worship that instead of surrendering to the God of the plan. You say, Jeff, what, what do I do? By the way, could Simeon do anything to make this happen? Could he do anything? Friends, let me tell you why some, you need to learn what the Bible says about faith. You need to learn it. Let me tell you why. If you're not already there, you're going to hit places in life where God's going to bring you to these immovable walls that you can't knock down. That you can't, I'm going to break it, I'm going to force it, I'm going to push it, I'm going to... And God's just going to go, yeah, yeah, keep on. Kind of like my dad when I was a little kid. He'd just hold me by the head. I'd be like. <laughs> He'll just like let you. Okay, are you through yet? Some of you may wonder why you spend an exorbitant amount of time in the valley. It may be that he's wanting to get you to surrender in the valley so he can go ahead and get you up on that peak. Just surrender. Just surrender. Do you wave a white flag? Um, do you sign a peace treaty? How do you surrender again? Do you lay your arms down? Do you have a ceremony where you hand God your sword? I mean, what are you talking about? He's going to bring you to those moments where you can't accomplish. Simeon was at that. He couldn't make this happen. Can you imagine all the false starts and false claims and people that have been waiting for it all this time? He couldn't make it happen. All he could do was surrender to the God who decided that it should happen. 
This doesn't make any sense. The second thing is, and, and again, this is a challenging one. You got to accept God's timing. Hebrews. Yeah, you. Yeah, imagine how hard that would be. Yeah, see, you when you hear that God has a special plan for you, because you know that's what we're going to assume. There's a super special mission for you in your life. Um, that you, as soon as you you know you get that. Don't put your own timetable on it. You need to just, you know, put your timetable aside and submit to God's timetable. Mm-hmm. None of this is taught in this biblical text, by the way. 6, 11 through 12, I love it. It says, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish, but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises through faith and what through faith and patience inherit the promises and he's pouring into this text i ripped out of context this idea that god has a plan for you to do and those are the promises accepting god's timing you say jeff what did simeon do well it doesn't tell us a lot about his emotions like not at all it tells us though some things about his character he was a devout and righteous man who was leaning on what the Spirit was doing in his life. Because we're going to read in a minute. He was led by the Spirit back to the temple. An ordinary day, no telling how many families that had brought their babies to that or their, their children and, and had brought them there. as a kind of another day at the office. So what did Simeon do? Simeon just kept accepting God's timing he just walked in what God said. He just continued to embrace it. He just kind of got out of bed. He just got out of bed day after day. I mean, how is it that you can read a biblical passage like this passage in Luke 2 and make it about you? Just find the secret to the success of Simeon. How was it that he was able to see Jesus? And then apply those principles to your life because this is all about your life. No, it's not day did what God said kept looking for that Messiah just kept on just kept on just kept on just kept on and some of you here you're like Jeff I just feel like I'm keeping on and keeping on and keeping on what am I supposed to do well if you feel like you want to press on something let me encourage you with this quit pressing outward and start pressing upward press upward what <clears throat> what is the cash value of that statement don't press outward press upward what are you talking about press what press toward God remember he cares more about the who than the what he wants you to press into him it's like great I can't even see him how am I supposed to press into him man I want God's provision at another level in my life well guess what are you deciding in the valley to obey God with the provision he's already given you yeah but what if I'm not in the valley again I just I, I might be in Florida, and I, I'm in a tropical zone with alligators. Why would he want to give you more if you can't obey him with what he's already given you? What do you do? You just It's those character decisions in the valley. Oh, so yeah, this is all law, law. God wants to give you more, but he's looking to see what your character decisions are in the valley or the desert or the tropical region wherever you may be residing it doesn't matter it's the stuff nobody sees it's the willingness to say if that's what god says i'm going to do it and i'm going to do it over and over and i'm going to stay devout and i'm going to stay true to the character of what god's doing on the inside of me and i'm going to do it day after day after day after day after day after day after day right 
Yeah, I'd like to see that because day after day after day after day, you sin in thought, word, deed by what you do and don't do. So every day after day after day is another failure after failure after failure. And let God take care of the miracles because he's in the miracle working business. And Just like Miracle Max. You know what that does? It frees you. Some of you here just need to take a drink from the grace of God today. That he just wants to whisper to you, hey, I got this. I got this. I'm the one that came up with the plan. I'm the one that set this in place. Quit pushing on the wall. Quit fighting through the valley. Just accept my timing. Just accept me. Get closer to me. Obey me. Trust me. Connect to me. Let me move in your life. Let me, let me show you that I'm tired of all your performance and all of your trying and all of your stuff. And just let me move in your life in a powerful way. And that's what Simeon did. He just day by day just stayed devout, continuing to do what God said. And what happened? It says he was moved by the Spirit. Doesn't really say there was any other grand things about this day. He just heard the Spirit say something. He moved and he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised. You may now dismiss your servant in peace. There's another indicator that this took a long time. He's like, okay, I'm done now, and I'm at that place in life. Okay, I'm, I'm good. I've fulfilled. It's like Paul. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him, and then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Can you imagine that moment for this guy who had spent his whole life and there he is now looking at God face to face? I want to tell you, God has some peaks of provision for you. He has some moments where... (laughs) Wow, A, a passage about Jesus that this guy is twisted to be about you. What is with these seeker-driven guys that they can't read a biblical text and make it about Christ? You know, if you have your Bible, flip on over to Luke chapter 2. Let's spend a little time in Luke chapter 2 around where he's talking, okay? And um, Luke chapter 2, verse 21. I'll be reading from the ESV rather than the NIV. Verse 21, at the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. You'll notice that the narrative is distinctly about Jesus. Jesus is the main character in the entire gospel here. Simeon has a bit role, okay? We don't know much about Simeon. Why? The story's not about him. The story is about God using him to exalt and glorify his son, Jesus Christ. Verse 22, when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy, set apart to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. 
Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous, devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. By the way, was he righteous by works or righteous by faith? Answer, if you see anybody in the biblical text that God in his word has described as righteous, he's righteous by faith. All right, so devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, think prophets here, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ or the Lord's Messiah. He came in the Spirit into the temple. Okay, now, he shows up completely unexpected. Mary and Joseph, keep in mind, if we were to read the entire chapter, what everything that Mary and Joseph have been through, the announcement of Jesus, Jesus' you know, virgin conception, okay, the, the Annunciation, Joseph thinking about divorcing his wife quietly, an angel appearing to him and saying, no, 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 no. We've got the story of Zacharias. We've got the story of the birth of John the Baptist. Um, we got the story of the census and uh, and Mary and Joseph making the trek from Nazareth to Bethlehem while Mary is literally, you know, at full term. I mean, she can give birth at any moment. They arrive in Bethlehem. The place is packed. There's no room for them in the inn. Somebody takes them in. And she gives birth to a son. Okay. All of this stuff is going on. And then you have the shepherds in the field watching their flocks by night coming and worshiping this newborn baby. So now they've got to do for Jesus what the law of Moses demands. He's got to fulfill the law perfectly, right? And here, part of his fulfillment of the law is his parents have to offer these sacrifices according to the Mosaic law, okay, for his purification, for his being presented to the Lord. So they show up to do this, and out of nowhere, out of nowhere, comes Simeon. Okay? We get a little bit of backstory. He came into the spirit, into the temple, when the parents brought in the, the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. Simeon took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And you can just see Mary and Joseph going, what? Who is this guy? How did he know? How did the shepherds know? Right? And this is an announcement regarding Jesus. A miraculous, prophetic utterance by one of the very, very last Old Testament prophets. Simeon. The word of the Lord was upon him. The Spirit of God was upon him. What he spoke, he spoke prophetically by the Holy Spirit. What he spoke was inspired by God the Holy Spirit. Simeon, a minor, minor, minor 
Old Testament prophet. So minor, he doesn't even appear in the Old Testament. He appears right in the stitching between the Old Testament and the New. And he declares that he has seen God's salvation, the Messiah. My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of every people, a light to reveal you to the nations and for the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about Jesus, about him. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And then he says some very important words. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Okay. Interesting. How did Luke know this? Answer. He had a conversation with Mary. He interviewed her in order to put this into the gospel. She was alive when he wrote this. He met with her and spoke with her and took all this down. Because the text says that he pondered, she pondered these things in her heart. She kept them. And God, the Holy Spirit, gave to her the ability to recall what was said and what was happened so that it could be recorded here for us. Now, the story doesn't end there. And there was a prophetess. See, Simeon is a prophet. And here's a prophetess. Anna, and boy, this is great stuff. The daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Israel. So even Anna is there, this other prophetess. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong and filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. That's what's going on in the story. This is all about Jesus. There's no secrets here given regarding Simeon or Anna. If you can, if you think you can figure out somehow how how did how did how did Simeon get to you know the, the, get this promise? There's nothing there that's applied to you except for what Jesus is promised for you. See, the promise is not for you to hear the word of the Lord so you can be used like Simeon. The promise is for you that Jesus is your Savior, that he was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. This is the story of Jesus, not Simeon. Simeon's life is not to be repeated. And Jesus' life was poured out for you. This is the story of what God did for us. This is not about anything else. We continue. It's going to happen in your life, some things God said. What are you going to do in the gap? What are you going to do in that in-between time? That's what God wants to communicate to you today. I encourage you, 
to lean into him and his grace at a different level and surrender to his plan and accept his timing and let him move in and through you. Will you bow your heads with me today? No, you don't get to pray for us. So there you go, complete biffing of Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 22. Narcissistic eisegesis, yet another example of it. Yeah, I've uh, subscribed to their podcast and um, get the feeling that they may be making some future appearances here at our sermon review time here at Fighting for the Faith, and for all the wrong reasons. Sad when you wrestle the biblical texts that are about Christ and try to make them about yourself. You miss everything and you lose everything. Because the good news of a Savior born to us from the Virgin Mary for our salvation, that's the kind of news that I can hang on to right now in the midst of the trial and the tribulation and the struggles I'm experiencing as a result of the news of my brother's brain tumor. The message that that pastor preached isn't comforting at all. It's a bunch of nonsense. gives me nothing to hang on to. It's like a greased pole that I'm supposed to climb. Good luck on that. But when I take another closer look at this, what the text is saying about the Savior born for me, the Savior born for you, the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, a light to reveal God to the Gentiles, I'm one of those, a Savior, Savior from sin, a Savior from death, a Savior from the devil. That's the Savior I need, because that's the only Savior who can give me real hope. A Savior who's promised to give me tips and coach me so that I can have perspective when expectations don't come in the way they, I had hoped they would. That's not, a, that's not a Savior. And that's not even the biblical Jesus. I don't recognize that guy. I don't want to have anything to do with him. He's not real. He's not really addressing the real problem that I really face. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. If you don't already support this uh, important radio outreach, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you're going to see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. Click on one of them. And if you'd like to uh, send in your contribution uh, via the mail, you can do that by making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.